You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of July, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Britain's foreign and Brexit secretaries resigned today within a few hours of each other, heaping pressure on Prime Minister Theresa May in what appears to be a full-blown crisis over the UK's Brexit strategy. We do not agree about the best way of delivering our shared commitment to honour the result of the referendum. My guests Terry Stiasny and Carlo Benura will be discussing the implications and the day's other top stories, including... Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte has made many outrageous statements in his time as leader, but do his comments on the Catholic Church and the existence of God top them all? And Spain's new Prime Minister has met the pro-independence Catalan leader for the first time. Does it signal a softening of tensions between the sides? All to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, Carlo Bonero, Senior Teaching Fellow in the Southeast Asian Politics uh, category at SOAS, and Terry Stiasny, author and journalist. Welcome both back to the program. Boris Johnson has resigned as the UK's Foreign Secretary, as we've all seen, uh, following the resignation of the government's Brexit Secretary, David Davis. Johnson's announcement came as Theresa May was set to address Parliament, which she did uh, earlier, which was a uh, fiery encounter. Days ago, the Cabinet had agreed to the PM's Brexit plan following talks checkers, but Davis said he was not the one to deliver that plan. Johnson and Davis may have uh, may have believed by quitting it would force the prime minister to reassess that agreement, but number 10 says uh, there's no chance of that now. Um, Terry, let's start with you. Is uh, Theresa May's position now untenable? I think it's very, very difficult to see how Theresa May gets through this. We've had these threats to resign from David Davis and Boris Johnson before. It's almost been kind of become a running joke in Westminster, like how how long will it actually take for them to resign? Mm. Now the two of them have resigned, albeit, you know, two days after this big meeting at Chequers that was supposed to sort everything out. And on the face of it, it seemed as though they had actually agreed on a common approach. It turns out, you know, 48 hours later, mm. after they got the football match out of the way, that they hadn't. Uh, I just don't see how she can reconcile these different positions uh, within her own party. If she can't get uh, the Brexiters within the cabinet to agree, and when we saw Theresa May this afternoon stand up and give her statement in the House of Commons, she had just unhelpful question after unhelpful question from you know from the Brexit side of the debate in her own party. She was getting more of a hard time from her own party than she was pretty much from from the opposition and unhelpful questions from the Remain side of the debate as well. So although she has just literally a couple of minutes ago walked into a meeting with all of her backbench MPs and, you know, as is traditional, they sort of cheered her and banged their desks, you know, I don't see how she carries on. There is now a question as to whether letters will go to you know, the committee of MPs calling for her resignation and calling for a vote of confidence. Uh, Carla, what did you see in there today? Do you, uh, do you suspect a vote of no confidence could be in the cards? Uh, certainly, this a, it's a possibility. I think that uh, this has been uh, the lack of vision, clear vision on uh, what to do in terms of how to structure Brexit, how to resolve the tensions within the party, 
uh, has been, I think, uh, classic Theresa May for the length of her uh, prime ministership. This is what, what's interesting for me is that the the checkers deal was in fact an effort to try to put something on paper to try to uh, send signals to the EU. Even if this uh, UK EU trade deal wouldn't um, get off the ground, at least it was something that people could work with. I noticed today that some of the EU diplomats were saying this would have been a good starting point uh, over a year ago to mm-hmm. start with. But at this late date, it may not it may not go anywhere. But I, I agree with Terry that this is uh, this. It's very difficult to see how Theresa May can continue to encounter these crises and and uh, fail to resolve them. And Prime Minister Theresa May has said uh, the two offers from Brussels are simply not acceptable to Britain. Um, what will we see next, um, Terry, in the Brexit process and government strategy now with this this big crisis? We can call it. Uh, it's it's very difficult to see where they go from here. I mean, they've got a new Brexit secretary, Dominic Raab, who presumably is supposed to now pick up the baton and go to Brussels and try to negotiate. But you just look how little time there is. I mean, as Carlos said, you know, this would have been a fine starting point, you know, a year or two ago, around the time of triggering Article 50. We're supposed to have some kind of a deal on the table by the October EU summit. It's now, you know, getting on for the middle of July. Most... European capitals tend to take August off and in a British parliament tends to take, you know, plenty of July and August and September off. I don't know how we get there from here. I really don't. You know, it's the thing that's becoming more and more worrying is that we do end up, you know, leaving with no deal, not having any transition agreements in place, not having anything there. And you know, despite what some Brexiteers might say that it would all be fine, we'd just go on to world trade rules and, and we wouldn't see the difference. I just think that would be a disastrous result. In, in Brussels, Donald Tusk saying today the mess of Brexit, the biggest problem in the history of UK-EU relations and far from being resolved, no matter what ministers are on the file. Can we agree with that? You've mentioned the, the short timeline that we're facing. That it's the, the greatest a historical challenge to yeah absolutely. I mean aside from this is a little bit uh, snide but aside from the fact that there's very little support for a thing called Europe in mm-hmm. the UK and has historically been so uh, setting that aside then yes this is absolutely institutionally the uh, greatest challenge and um, I, I think that getting back to the question of no deal perhaps the only reasonable again this is perhaps a little bit uh, sarcastic but I guess the only reasonable um thing that was included in the checkers deal in terms of something that would make sense of the the current political situation was the final point uh, which was the um uh, putting money aside to plan for a no deal. I mean, I think that was the most realistic option, uh, something that perhaps everybody could uh, agree on and this is something that should have been again planned for from the very beginning. The Liberal Democrat leader today said that the with Brexit fundamentalists gone from cabinet, and as he described Davis and Johnson, uh, that the prime minister should realize the majority of House wants Britain to remain in the single market and customs union. Um, Terry, will there be more pressure to look at that option uh, more closely? Um, it's interesting. I'd like I'd like to think there would be. Uh, I think one of the difficulties here is getting the Labour Party, the opposition, to agree with that because uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, hasn't been going in that direction. There is a sizable chunk of his party that would disagree, and you know it could be possible to get 
uh, a large chunk of Labour rebels and a large chunk of, of con- the Conservative Party mm. and the Liberal Democrats as well to, and possibly the Scottish National Party to agree on something. I just don't think at the moment Theresa May is, is in a position to make that work. And she, you know, they've tried to do things like offer briefings to opposition MPs on the, the Chequers thing. And then we saw the sort of farce of that falling apart today as people were literally running out of the meeting hearing that the Foreign Secretary had resigned. Mm. So, you know, again, you know, with a cunning political strategy, it could happen. I just don't think there's any sign that anyone's got that cunning strategy. Uh, Theresa May said that's not what uh, people voted for when they voted for Brexit, having this, uh, staying in the single market and the customs union. Uh, but will she k- keep on with that position? Is, is, it, is it one that she can, she can win? Uh, I think that this is, I just don't think that anybody has a clear sense of what uh, Brexit means at this stage. Jacob Rees-Mogg today said in, the, in a similar kind of political doublespeak uh, that um, the the checkers compromise simply wasn't that it simply meant that Brexit doesn't mean Brexit but even that phrase means it has it, it's simply rhetoric mm-hmm. so I think that if she were to if there was a position to stand by if there was actually uh, a meaningful notion of Brexit whether soft Brexit or something else uh, or as uh, Terry just pointed out if she had a, a clear political vision of how to strengthen her support within Parliament and then move on from there or at least something that people could uh, rally around uh, that perhaps that would work but I think that um, uh, I think that th- this is what is lacking here and also just to kind of broaden the the scope of the conversation is a, a tiny bit even if we were to get a second re- referendum mm-hmm. or a soft brexit this does not resolve the question and I just mentioned this a second ago but it doesn't resolve the question of Europe for the UK and that's where I think there's a complete failure of political leadership even for those people who remain, the vast majority of those people who remain, whether political elites or everyday people, they think about Brussels in a bureaucratic and specifically economic or neoliberal uh, frame. They don't think about Europe as a broader political project. So I would say that even if there was a second referendum tomorrow, that it would still, uh, the, the result would still be the same. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, given that failure. Would you agree with that, Terry? Uh, I don't. I don't know what a second referendum result would be. Mm-hmm. I think it would be very difficult to to get people to suddenly turn around and say, "Oh, you know, we'll, we'll vote Remain after all. This has all been a, a terrible mistake." Mm. But uh, I suppose that one of you know. One of the big problems is that we we didn't know what people were voting for when they voted to leave. People were voting for different things. They were some were voting to stop immigration, some were voting to have blue passports, some were voting to be a sort of a free trade zone like Singapore. You know, even within the Leave campaign, people were voting for completely different things, and most people were not thinking about you know the minutiae of supply chains for building cars. You know, one of the issues that the industry has brought up in the last week. They weren't thinking about you know how the Irish border and how things were going to work in practice. Most people didn't realise quite how complicated this would be and the many Leave voters were sold you know, lots of different sorts of rhetoric and they just liked the sound of fewer rules from Brussels. Uh, Johnson was uh, long a thorn in the side of Theresa May. Uh, could this actually make her way forward easier, Carlo, or is, is that still quite unclear with, uh, with all the unrest in the, in the party? Well, if the cabinet survives, which I think was Terry's point earlier, mm-hmm. um, certainly having people who are completely antithetical to your position on this basic, uh, you know, this critical element of politics of the day uh, will make her life easier. It doesn't mean those positions go away. And once again, just to reiterate the point, I'm not sure that we know what Boris Johnson's position on Brexit actually is anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that just to, to, again, to expand the conversation slightly, I think that it's possible that 
British foreign policy might gain some clarity with a foreign minister that doesn't um, try to craft foreign policy on the fly. Uh, but at the same time, in terms of in terms of Brexit, her day to day life will be easier. But how much life she has left as prime minister would be uh, is a question. So, uh, Terry, is there any chance May can put this back on track? And, and what do you think the first steps are mm. in, in doing that? It's going to be dev- very difficult. I mean, you know, we haven't got a foreign secretary at the moment on no. a day when you know a British citizen has died on the streets of Salisbury after you know suspected nerve agent poisoning. There are bigger issues out there, not just Brexit. But I think the difficulty is going to be people like David Davis and Boris Johnson. They showboat. They like to think that they have grand political cunning plans. They have not resigned in order to say stay silent. So it's going to be what they say over the next couple of days and whether they are trying to mount some kind of a, a leadership challenge. I just can't expect that either of them are planning to go, you know, David Davis, we already heard from today. I can't imagine that Boris Johnson is planning to go quietly. That's just not in his mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, we, we, we've talked about, you know, uh, perhaps not seeing another referendum on Brexit, but is a general election a possibility, Carlo? Do you see that in the cards? Wow. I think uh, part of the problem here on Brexit, as was already mentioned, is that Labour also is not unified on Brexit. Labour, I think, would not necessarily benefit from a general election. I don't think that, I think one of Theresa May's benefits is that Labour is so weak in terms of its Mm. capacity to present a um, a political challenge. Corbyn is and his uh, political network or machine is very effective in terms of dominating politics within labor uh, domestically or excuse me nationally. I'm I, and th- perhaps they could pull off the type of uh, better result that they did last time. But I think that the for the Tories, I would just avoid my advice would be as if they're listening to me uh, would be to avoid a general election and just uh, try to keep uh, May in the position she's in to avoid uh, taking all these back um, you know these. Uh, conflicts within the that's going on behind the scenes and making them public. I want to move on uh, now to the Philippines, where President Rodrigo Duterte claims he, to have suffered sexual abuse from a Catholic priest uh, when he was a young man, which led him to leave the faith. And now he's also said he would resign if someone could prove the existence of God by taking a selfie. Uh, over 90% of the 103 million people in the Philippines are Catholic, uh, but Duterte continues to enjoy a widespread popularity no matter what he says. Uh, will this hurt him, Carlo, or, or how does he continue to remain safe? Safe politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Duterte has, he said a lot of things. He has this kind of Trump-style quality to him where he really likes to get under people's skin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he also talks off the cuff, so people at this stage in his presidency are expecting this type of talk. Here, it's it's slightly more challenging, and I think his he had a meeting with the Archbishop of Manila, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this afternoon, in which he his spokesperson uh, argued that he would no longer talk about the church in public. So this demonstrates that he's obviously gotten the message from someone. But what amazes me about him uh, is that here we have a public confession of molestation, which is a very a personal and intimate thing. It should be taken very, very seriously, followed by an explanation of his personal faith mm. that ends in this claim about taking a selfie, that if someone could prove that they, <laughs> if someone could take a selfie with God, that he would resign his position, which is also what I find fascinating. Like, if if they take the selfie with God, it doesn't, he wouldn't admit to actually changing his beliefs at all right. and believing in God or the Catholic Church. <laughs> it would be that he would resign, right? Complete Something completely disconnected from the actual claim or the, you know, the, the conceptual 
enigma that he's trying to work through. So this is classic uh, Duterte. The I think the um, the points about molestation though got to the church leadership, and that was the result of the you know that resulted in the meeting. He must have been told to, that he's. I mean, the church is very powerful still in the Philippines, and he could easily have been told that if he continues on this route, that they would simply begin to organize against him. Terry, is this a man with uh, with no shame uh, to alienate a majority of the country's population just like that? Well, I think, you know, as Carlo was saying, as, as far as the things that Duterte regularly says goes, this is sort of nowhere near the most extreme. I mean, right. as you say, sort of <laughs> philosophically and theologically slightly, slightly mind-boggling. And obviously there is the more serious issue about, you know, abuse in the church, which we've seen in, in other countries around the world has really, un- that that's an issue that has undermined people's trust in the in the church as an institution but um just looking back you know Duterte is well he, he at the time he obviously believed there was some kind of a god because he, mm. he called god stupid and that led to him having accusations of blasphemy and that the church saying this was an evil thing to say and he had some fairly unbroadcastable comments about the pope after the last time that the, the pope came to visit so you know this is the kind of thing that he tends to say um and i don't know what you think about this Scarlett, but it, it's interesting interesting that he almost keeps using these threats to resign perhaps even to to get people to say you know oh go on no don't resign because there's a whole question now as to whether he's going to change the constitution whether he will mm. try and get himself to right. be allowed to stay on for a second term so you think he's almost kind of asking for people to say no 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 you know please don't please don't resign you know please just putting out these these threats there as a way mm. to kind of gain more attention and and boost his popularity but you know this is a man who has boasted of of having people killed you know right. these are as, as his extreme statements go these are these are not quite even up there mm. uh, on friday duterte said he would not seek a second term under the new constitution countering suspicions he might seek to overturn that single term limit uh, which would uh, not allow him to stay in office beyond 2022 as we said uh, the idea uh, being studied and could be put to a referendum but uh, carlo do you believe this is a man with one term no he certainly doesn't act like it he is a autocrat through and through um, and and we have to put into context this type of language he uses against the church mm-hmm. or against uh, other parts of the of uh, political elite. You know, he has run on being anti-establishment, and that establishment runs very very deep in modern Philippines politics, uh, from the including from lasting from the U.S. colonial period. Uh, uh, Philippines uh, politics is highly oligarchic, and the church leadership also plays an important role in that um, political establishment and the mm-hmm. defense of those elites. And so this is, uh, he sees these uh, as part and parcel, you know. But t- just to get back to his, his personal style, you mentioned that he uses this rhetoric of resigning a lot. And I think that this is absolutely true. Re- just recently, he had a, a very unpleasant um, incident in which he, in front of a whole group of people, kissed a um, migrant worker I think this was, I don't know in exactly. South Korea, I think, right? In South Korea. Yeah. Um, and uh, that he, his response to that was that if women's, women get together and women's groups get together and uh, pose a referendum or a, 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 a uh, excuse me, a, um, you know, if they go online and mm-hmm. have one of these um, referendums, then he would, he would resign as well if they, if they're so offended by the kiss. So I think this is a, this is classic Duterte. Yeah. He, he always throws out those, those threats to, to resign, but um, can he, is he really a man that can say whatever he wants then, Terry? 
Uh, well, he seems to be able to say whatever he wants, and mm. and look at his record. He seems to be able to to do whatever he wants. Mm. He's you know compared his own war of on drugs you know fate, he sort of thought that the holocaust was something good to emulate i mean this kind of you know we think that people have pushed the boundaries of what's acceptable right. in political speech but he's mm. really really pushed them you know and you know all human rights organizations will remind everybody of the thousands of people that have been killed in his you know so-called war on drugs by either by the police or by vigilantes you know mm. this is not someone he's got his own interpretation of uh, the rule of law and he's obviously got his own interpretation of what political power involves and what you can say and he's made you know other as you say you know horrible comments about women he's he doesn't mm. seem to fear very much at all really mm. well we shall see what comes and uh, if they do indeed uh, change the constitution there uh, you are listening to Midori House here with me Daniel H Terry Stiasny and Carlo Benura coming up next we look at what's next in talks between Catalonia and Madrid after the new Spanish prime minister met for the first time with the Catalan leader Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up and a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Carlo Bonura and Terry Stiasny. To Spain now, where Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez met Catalan leader Kim Tora for the first time today. It is a sign that the country's government is trying to soften the relations with the region after recent standoffs. And of course, a, uh, a referendum and a threat to leave the country. Catalonia declared independence, of course, last October, but was then subject to direct rule from Madrid. Uh, Terry Press, we'll start with you. How will this improve the relationship between Spain and Catalonia in general, these, these gentlemen finally sitting down? Uh, well, I think anything in in general terms, people talking is always better than people mm. not talking. I mean, the very fact that uh, they feel able to sit down with one another, whereas, you know, it's really a change in behaviour. You look at um, the previous the previous government. Obviously, there's been a, a change of government in Madrid, uh, but there are still lots of unresolved issues here. I mean, we've got we've got two new leaders who've both come in within the last couple of months, and you know they've they're able to start over to an extent that, that Rajoy and, and Puigdemont weren't able to do. Uh, but these issues are ultimately unresolved. I mean, because uh, Tora has been criticised in the past for his you know, very strongly anti-Spanish comments and some of the comments that he'd made in the past, there's still the issue about uh, the government in exile. You know, the former leader of Catalonia is that Spain want him to come back and, you know, he's he's trying to uh, to fight that at the moment. And I think that, you know, the the, P the 
Socialist Party government is in a, in a fairly weak position, so they have to tread quite cautiously, mm-hmm. and they are reliant on other political parties. So, you know, on the one hand, they're not likely to suddenly say yes, have everything you want, because they're not, you know, no party in Spain, in you know, a majority party, is going to threaten mm-hmm. the whole stability. But uh, you know, perhaps this is a is a cautious way forward that's in in everybody's interest. Uh, Carlo, both new leaders inheriting this crisis, as we've said, from from those who came before. How do you see them approaching uh, uh, moving forward and building a relationship uh, to, to discuss uh, independence or, or more self-rule? I agree. I agree that uh, this is there's bas- uh, basically a, a very deep disagreement over the very terms of uh, improving relations. Uh, Tora is in, recently on a trip to the United States. He demonstrated that he's still a firm, um, he's firmly committed to the outcome of the referendum back in October. And this is, it seems to me, to be a, a very key starting point in, in um, uh, perhaps restarting rela- or, you know, thawing relations between Catalonia and Spain. And it's, uh, it, there's just a disagreement over the legitimacy of that process. And it seems that that disagreement is not going away soon. You know, the, I saw in the press coverage that the a success would be just promising to meet again. And right. any time that, that, is the, <laughs> that that's the takeaway, you know that the situation is fairly bad. Well, Torres' newly elected administration continues to push for a split from Spain. And, and he's even called for a Scottish-style independence referendum. I assume that's probably off the table for Madrid, wouldn't it be, Terry? Well, you know, seeing as they, they've already had, you know, yeah. one vote that wasn't recognised, yeah. you think they can sort of call as many votes as they like. But mm. uh, the, the government of, of Spain, the Madrid government, is uh, not really not going to accept that. And so well, unless you can get right. to a situation through talking where they can hold a referendum that is going to be, you know, accepted by accepted by the rest of the country and whose outcome would be, accept, you know, would be accepted. I, mean, I think that that's, a, you know, a distant, long-term uh, sort of a goal. But I think, you know, one of the things to notice is that, you know, Sanchez is in a fairly weak position. You know, he's he's a minority. He's in a minority government. He's come in after a financial scandal affected, you know, the the, the Rajoy government and and saw them uh, out of office. So I think they're they're all sort of feeling their way. And I would imagine that if you're, you know, the new Spanish prime minister, this is just something that you want to keep simmering. You you right. don't want the whole Catalan issue to to boil up again while you're still trying to deal with other issues such as, as the economy and so forth. So uh, I would expect this to, you know, I could be wrong and proved wrong. <laughs> My political predictions, as everyone's have been, have been fairly you know, wonky the last couple of years. But uh, I would think you would try to take this very cautiously indeed. Uh, Carla, what do you think Sanchez and Torre have to gain uh, with this meeting? What, what would they uh, then uh, have on their, uh, their card of discussion? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so, what they have to gain from the meeting? Certainly, Sanchez, it's his. He has to uh, take first steps in terms of resolving the Catalan right. issue. But for Torre, I think perhaps uh, this is a public way of him to uh, not simply not step away from the position of uh, the hardline separatist position, but to demonstrate that he's willing to work with this process to to try to create some type of reconciliation. I think um, if this is. Uh, if nothing, you know, if nothing comes out of the meeting, uh, or sorry, if nothing has come out of the meeting, then uh, Sanchez, neither side really has much to lose from this. And again, if if it's just a we'll meet again soon, then mm-hmm. that's a, that's probably the best they could hope for. Terry, do you think there's any discussion on on what then to do with Puigdemont, who's still not in the country and and in Germany and and could be brought back to the country? But is is that perhaps too delicate a topic to discuss in in an early meeting such as this? 
Um, I, I don't know whether that would have come up. Um, you know, I, it is obviously a very difficult, you know, situation for, for all of them. Spain is trying to, you know, take action against uh, against the former leader. They are trying to have him brought out of other European countries where he has now gone to live. I mean, I think that to a certain extent that is out of their hands and it is in the hands of uh, of other European countries. Uh, so, again, I think that would be, you know, certainly it sounds like it might be a difficult issue for a a first meeting and mm. you know whether that would be something that they would want to raise or whether that's something that they might want to you know hold off for discussions or you know try and leave it to sort of the legal process i'm i'm, I'm not sure uh, and uh, carlo uh, what do you think would that come up or is it more a general discussion on uh, on the economy and, and things like that uh I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the discussion uh wasn't focused on uh politically simply trying to uh, figure out a way for the two governments to work with each other, right. and that at this stage that that's uh, um, dealing with the the legal issues. Excuse me, the the prisoner issues. Um, aside from moving the um, the those members of the separatist leadership who are in Spain from Madrid to Catalonia, uh, th- that's off the table probably for now. Yeah, fair enough. Well, great analysis. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Carlo Benura and Tara Stiasny, thank you very much for joining us here at Midori House in Studio One. Today's show produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lamichi Okamoto and Paula Schulz, our studio manager, David Stevens. Today, more music is next. And then at 1900 hours, it is the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. And we'll have more on the day's main story on the Monocle Daily at 2200 with Paul Osborne, of course, with Boris Johnson quitting. We will look further at what it means for Brexit negotiations. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I am Daniel Daniel Bates, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.